This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. And we do believe that there is indeed hope for a broken world, and that hope, we are here this morning because we believe that hope is the good news of God's love, the good news that was made manifest in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to do something with me. I want you to stand, and I want us to read a scripture together that proclaims that good news, that gospel, that hope for a broken world. 1 Corinthians 15, a beautiful text that explains the gospel, and we're going to try to dissect this a little bit before we go to the Lord's Supper. Well, let's read this as a matter of faith. Uh, As my friend A.J. Levine says, at times I know it. When knowing escapes me, I believe it. When believing evades me, I hope it. And ultimately, when hope even fades, I dream it. In the end, this really is the only dream worth dreaming. So whether you're dreamers, hopers, believers, or knowers, let's read it together and see if it sinks into our heart. Look at this text and let's read it together. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand through which also you are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Thank you. The word of the Lord. God bless you. You can be seated. It would be easy to understand if Paul had referred to the torturous crucifixion of Jesus along with the attendant burial that verified the death, it would be easy to understand if Paul would have referred to those things as the bad news. If he would have referred to that terrible Friday some 2,000 years ago, a stone's throw from the Damascus Gate just east of Jerusalem, a place we call Calvary or Golgotha, it would have made sense to me if Paul would have said that was the bad news. It would have also made sense to me that Paul would have left us then with the resurrection and its attendant consequence, its appearances. There were many appearances of the resurrection. Paul even listed some of them. Christ appeared to Peter, who had denied him. Christ appeared to James, his brother, who didn't believe in, did not believe in him probably until that moment. He appeared to a group of 500 people, the writer said at one time. We don't have that recorded in the Gospels. There are a lot of things not recorded in the Gospels, but Paul remembered it. Paul said there was a group of 500 people that saw the resurrected Lord. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared, Paul said, to the 12. It would have made sense if Paul would have left the resurrection and the appearances to this nomenclature of good news if he would have called this the gospel. But Paul did not make that distinction. 
Paul called the death the same thing he called the resurrection. Good news. Paul called the burial the same thing he called the appearances, gospel. And I think I understand, and I would equivocate there and tell you that anything I think I understand in relation to the vast mystery of God is a partial understanding. But this partial understanding is sufficient to resonate in my spirit and, and truly give comfort and even inspiration. And the bit of understanding I think I have about why that, why that day was called good and why that crucifixion was called good or gospel, I would like to give a bit of explanation. <clears throat> Before he was born, Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. He was called this by the silver-tongued prophet some 735 years before he was born. The prophet's name was Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This son that was given would be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For behold, a young woman will conceive. There will be a sign. She will conceive, and a child will be born to her, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This life that we know as Jesus of Nazareth, of all the things it was, it was at the very least God's way of reminding us that we do not have a distant, separated creator. We have a creator, we are reminded by Emmanuel, God with us. We have a creator who is closer than near. We have a creator that is closer than space can indicate. As the theologians say, we have a God who is trans-prepositional, trans, beyond, prepositions, spatial devices of grammar. In other words, trans-prepositional, he's beyond space. He's beyond proximity. He is so deeply with us and in us that even the words with and in only point. They do not capture. In Jesus, Emmanuel, we have a creator who is creation. A creator who is not only in creation, but for at least a time becomes creation. Jesus was actually, the scripture says, both creator and creation. You remember the prologue that I often quote from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Back up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians, the second chapter, the writer says, not only was he under creation and behind creation, but Jesus became creation, literally the firstborn of all creation. Speaking in human terms, he is the firstborn sibling of many brothers and sisters. Did you know that? You are the siblings. You are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. 
the firstborn of all creation. In Jesus, we see a living display of what has always been and always will be true. Jesus was not a parenthesis in the linear experience of God where finally God attached himself to flesh and understood what we were going through. No, 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 no. Jesus was a vista. Jesus was a window through which we looked and saw the reality of God at all times. In Jesus, we have a God who has not only come near, a God who is not only with us, but a God is in us of whom we can rightly say we are also with God and we are even in God. God is in us, we are in God, and again, prepositions are defied. And this is the Christ truth, that God is above us, beneath us, beyond us, and within us. And in this divinely representative life, because that's what Jesus was, Jesus was saying, you want to see God? Here it is. Look at me. And Jesus, in this profound oneness of creator and creation, in this profound solidarity with all of us and all of creation, this man named Jesus, this God called creator, this one called the firstborn of all creation, does not display a fractional union or a partial solidarity. In other words, God does not come only so far in God's solidarity with us, but as Max Licato said many years ago, 30 years ago in one of his earlier books, that God did not come on a fact-finding mission, that God did not come to find out anything about us, God did not come to learn what we were going through, God came in Christ to remove any doubt that we might ever have. God has always been in us, always been with us. So much so, the Apostle Paul said that God humbled himself. How far did God humble himself? Lakato said that he came not with chain mail, no rubber gloves, no impenetrable vest, but God hooked the central nervous system of the divine up to the central nervous system of a human. And God wasn't simply in the flesh, God became the flesh. And to what extent did God become the flesh? Paul told the Philippians he humbled himself. How low? He humbled himself. Even to the form of a slave. How low? Even to death. How low? Even to the worst death imaginable. A torturous death by crucifixion. I want you to read with me another text, another proclamation of the gospel. I just alluded to it in Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2, and let's look at the first eight verses there. Read this aloud with me. Let's read together. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. William Stacy Johnson, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our time, says that that word, that word that begins the hymn, there's a hymn in Philippians 2 that preceded Paul's writing, a hymn that was probably known to all of the church. That hymn that we translate quite often, though he was God, William Stacy Johnson said that is, by his estimation, an inappropriate rendering of the original text. William Stacy Johnson says that the word though should more definitively be the word because. Johnson argues with scholars because there is latitude in the text to go either with because or with though, but Johnson makes a strong case, and others have made it before him and after him, that the reason we translate that word, the reason we take latitude and translate that word or that syntax, though he was in the form of God, is because we are by this manifesting how we feel about God. Though he was God, he humbled himself. It tells you a little bit about how we see God. In spite of the fact that he was God, he did something that we wouldn't think that God would do. But William Stacy Johnson says this is an inappropriate assumption about God. That if we understand truly the heart of God revealed in Christ, then we would understand that we not only have latitude, but we have the responsibility to render that because he was God. Not in spite of the fact that he was God, but because he was God, he humbled himself. Because he was God, he took the form of a slave. What we see in the person of Jesus Christ allows us to look back and say what God did in the person of Jesus Christ tells us so much about the character of God that we realize that his death, even the death of a cross, poured out in great love, in union and solidarity with those children that he loved. This was not in spite of God's character. This was because of God's character. I love Eugene Peterson as the message on this text. Peterson begins that text with Paul's question, and listen to it from his perspective. He has Paul say this, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Jesus, that's a good place to start. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Jesus, if his love has made any difference in your life, If 47 years of Sundays and fellowship meetings and Sunday night evangelistic services and flannel graphs and Sunday school teachers and youth camps and tithes and communions and foot washings and pastors and evangelists and faithful grandmothers, you have your own mosaic. If being in a community of his spirit has meant anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, 
then do me a favor. Do God a favor and do yourself a favor, Paul said. If any of this has meant anything more to you than just a sociological construct of your Western life, if a resurrection is more than a historical narrative, if a cross means anything to you, if this Stan Mitchell goes beyond a vocation and a way of providing for your family, love each other. Don't live selfish lives. Don't be jealous. If you've gotten anything at all out of this, live in harmony. If his love has made any difference in your life, don't be arrogant or proud or conceited. Don't be selfish in your ambition. Think of others' well-being. Care for others looking out for their interest as you look out for your own. If Jesus really means something to you, and this is more than a Kiwanis club or a PTA or the Brentwood Civitan Baseball Peewee Association, if this, if this really is a part of the fabric of your soul, if this still has the ability to send shivers up your spine every now and then, if the, if the cracked sound of bread and a broken body still sinks down somewhere deeper than your belly that the bread goes to, work together, be humble, and care about others as much as you care about yourself. In other words, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Allow it to be so. It will never be imposed upon you. But if this is real to you on any level, if it is real to you and you're knowing, you're believing, you're hoping, at least you're dreaming. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. Think the way Jesus thought. Love the way Jesus loved. Live the way Jesus lived. Don't just believe in Jesus. Believe like Jesus. Ooh, we could stop right there. Do you believe in Jesus? I do. But perhaps even more importantly, do you believe like Jesus? Because if you believe like Jesus, then you live like Jesus. And what was this mindset that Paul said that we should have? What was this attitude that Christ had? How did Jesus think and live? Oh, though he was God, because he was God. Because he was God, he did not cling to his privileges. Because he was God, 
He willingly gave up his position of advantage. Because he was God, here it is, you want the gospel? Because he was God, he emptied himself of divine benefits. Because he was God, he felt no entitlement, he claimed no exemption, and he demanded no special rights. Because he was God, not in spite of the fact he was God, but absolutely because he was God, he gave up everything but his character. Because he was God, Jesus took the form of a slave. It was not imposed upon him. He took it. He stood wet with his own baptism. And one who procured this world millennia before looked at him and said, I'll give you every bit of it. And he said, with his belly opining for bread, no, thank you. Because he was God, he took the form of a slave. Because he was God, he took the lowest position a human being could find themselves in. Where did God go when he came to this earth? He went to the place where he had always been and we had not known. He went to the crevices, the creases, the margins. Because he was God, he took the form of a slave, the lowest position a human being could find themselves in, commoditized, abused, dehumanized, dehumanized by other human beings who are actually your brothers and sisters. But even this was not enough. Because he was God, he had to step one rung lower than a slave. Because he was God, he humbled himself even to the point of death. And the condescending love of God gravitationally pulled him even past death, even to the death of the worst criminal. He laid himself on the gurney. He strapped himself in the chair. He stood blinded. He wrapped the noose around his neck. Do you see the good news in that death yet? From that infamous Friday, do you have any sense now of why it might have been called good? Maybe not, and I don't blame you. But before I do my best to make it clear through the text, I want to make one more thing clear about death. This death on a hill far away that I am trying to proclaim today is good. I want you to know that the one who proclaimed it good from the first, this one named Paul, was no fool. In the text, where he says the good news is namely this, Christ died. God died. He not only died, he was tortured mercilessly. Birds of prey perched on his shoulders, pecking at the scabbed mucus, blood, tears, and sweat. 
and through parched lips, the God who dredged the Nile and the Ganges with his pinky, the God who thumbprinted the Great Lakes, whispered through cracked dry lips, I'm thirsty, and they mocked him with gall and myrrh. And I would dare stand with Paul and say it was good. Well, I, like Paul, am no heartless sadist who tries to make death itself a friend and a wonderful report. Paul nor I are efforting to be the unwise friend of Job that shows up foolishly, damagingly, glossing over the pain of our suffering and loss. Paul was not the misguided novice of a pastoral comfort who tries to superimpose a glad face on the tear streaked. No, this was not Paul. No, a thousand times no. As a matter of fact, it is in that very chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul goes on to describe death as the ultimate enemy of God. He called it friend. He looked at the crucified God and said, that is good. And then within verses, within only a few lines, he was describing death as the ultimate enemy of God, creation, and us saying that Christ's final and most formidable enemy, that final enemy to be defeated, will be this horrible fiend that has been ripping and tearing our hearts from the beginning of time, this foe that has left us broken over the cold bodies of those who were the dearest and the best and the most precious to us. No. Paul would never look to the mother whose stillborn child lies lifeless at her breast. He would never traipse coldly amongst the bodies of young soldiers who gave all in wars and for causes that we have yet to justify. Paul would never proclaim these things good. Paul had not made glib, capricious peace with death. These things, this thing called death is the enemy, Paul said. Then why, mad apostle, do you call it good when it locates in the body of God? These things are the enemy because they are unjust, because they are unfair, and they are unfounded. These things are the enemy because they are drunk driving fatalities. Sudden infant death syndrome. The old man lost in the fire at the old folks' home whose profiteering owners cut too many corners in construction and care. How then is this enemy called death in its ultimate act of injustice, the torture and murder of love incarnate, Emmanuel? How then is it in any wise called good news? Well, this is the very question that Paul answers in his famed second chapter to the church at Philippi. And perhaps by now you have intuited and already understood from his words the answer that I'm pointing to. But before we hear it clear from Paul, I want you to hear it from Jesus, who himself was the crucified one. I would like for you to hear from Jesus. I would love for him to be able to explain to you why that death most unjust could be called good news 
And that Friday two millennia ago can aptly be called the same. John 17, rather John 10, verses 17 through 18. The Father loves me, Jesus said, because I give up my life. This Hebrew sense of love is not a performance-based earning because Jesus has made it very clear that from the earliest times he was the beloved of the Father before he did one thing. But this idea of the Father loves me is the idea of the Father affirms deeply. The Father, it is the same sense that Paul used when he said God loves a cheerful giver. We also know that God loves uncheerful givers but God loves it when we give cheerfully. It's a hyperbolic statement. It's an exaggerated statement. But Jesus said the Father loves me using that idiom. And here's why he loves me, because I give up my life. But I don't simply give up my life. I give it up so. I give it up with a purpose. I give it up so that I may receive it back again. And so that you might be clear, Jesus intones, no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. Hebrews, the second chapter, the 14th and 15th verse, furthers the commentary by saying, since the children are made of flesh and blood, it is logical, not though he was God, because he was God. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood. If you really understand God, it makes all the sense in the world. And I can still hear my brother say to my dad, why do you love me so? And I can hear him, Eddie, look at that broken boy and say, because you're mine. Mine. And the child wonders at the love of the parent. It is logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. I willingly gave up death so that I could take it up this life again. But when I take it up again, I will not be alone, but I will lead captive from death. I will rescue others by my death. And by embracing death, taking in it into himself. Why was that Friday good? Because when he embraced death, he did it for the sake of life. He took it into himself and he destroyed the demonic devil's evil hold on death. And he freed us, all of us who cower through life, scared the death of death. How then is Jesus' death good news? How can that Friday be called good? It is good expressly by virtue of this. Jesus chose this death for the love of the other. This death was good because this is a death died for others. Because it was a death whose purpose was life. This day 
2,000 years ago on a hill far away was a Good Friday because it was there that Jesus joined us to the fullest degree, and in so doing, we came to understand that what he did on that hillside 2,000 years ago was not a new venture for God. Rather, it was the express image, the revelation of where God had always been and what God had always been doing. He was with us. He was in us, in all of us, in our living and in our dying. When you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And the Revelator John said, that lamb that was slain was not simply slain 2,000 years ago, but what we saw on that cross, that lamb was slain before the world was made. When death moved into this world the first time, it moved into God, and in the cross, we see God delivering us from our fear of dying because God is in our dying. We are delivered from sickness and suffering because God is in our sickness and suffering. And this is what St. Julian of Norwich called God's great wanting. This is why Jesus' death was good, because it was meaningful, because it was for a cause, because it was for the other, his death was good because it had a purpose. It showed all of us the truth that our deaths do not have the last say because God always has been and always will be in them. His death was a good thing because it was for a worthy cause. And so today... When you let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, you will let go of safety to join in the suffering of the unsafe. When you let this attitude that was in Jesus be in you, you will forfeit privilege to find solidarity with the underprivileged. When you think like Jesus thought, you will give up advantage to become one with the disadvantaged. When you live the life of Jesus, you will relinquish power to give strength to the weak. And then in these letting goes, in these willing deaths, you will realize that you not only believe the good news, you are the good news. For greater love hath no one than this, than they lay down their life for a friend. For when we were helpless and without strength, Christ came and Christ died for us. You've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love even your enemies. Do good to those and spitefully use you. Die for them if you need to. And in so doing, they will know that you are children of the Father in heaven. You are never more like Jesus, you are never more yourself, and you are never more who you were created in God's image to be than when you willingly, for love's sake, move into the plight, the suffering, the need, and the death of another human being. When you not only believe the good news, but you become it. I want our brothers and sisters that are tending to the Lord's Supper today to take the plates and be ready to serve, and I want our musicians to come. And I want you to fix your eyes 
on a scripture above. Philippians, the second chapter, verse 9 through 11. I want to tell you where Easter plays into all of this and where the resurrection plays into all of this. If you want to know where the resurrection plays into all of this, listen to Paul as he continues the song that he started. Because of this, because of your willingness to join the sufferings of others, because of your willingness to live the crucified life, because of this, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name above all other names. Because he made himself low, God raised him. Brothers and sisters, if I've ever said anything true of the resurrection, may I declare to you today that until the hour when tears are no more, as long as injustice rages in this world, as long as human beings are pushed to the margins, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power by which you are called to live the crucified life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ does not turn you away from the cross. It leads you back into the cross to take up that cross with the power of a resurrection and to lay your life ever and willingly down for the other. How does God feel about those who take up their brother's pain? How does God feel about those who take up their sister's weakness? How does God feel about those who enjoin their friend's suffering? He will raise them up who have laid themselves low for another. And if you're wondering today what to do with this resurrection power that we're celebrating, turn around, Steve Lindstrom, and pick up the cross again. For there is no greater life of resurrection than the life of joining other people's crucifixions and leading them in great grace, mercy, and love out until they with us believe the gospel and are delivered from fear. As we bow our heads to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper on this Easter as our brothers and sisters ready themselves to tender the Lord's body and blood for us. We remind ourselves, sweet Christ, that this is what resurrection means. Our new life is a crucified life empowered. Resurrected one, we remember that your hands still bore scars and your side was still printed to Thomas's great relief. For until tears are gone and injustice is no more and death has died, we are called and empowered by Easter, by the resurrection, by the getting up of our Lord to take up our crosses and follow him, to bear one another's burdens, to count not our lives our own, to sacrificial love, to weep with those who weep. And so, sweet Christ, as we prepare our hearts for Easter's Eucharist, we are reminded of John's vision of you, the victor, standing in your throne. The kingdoms of men transformed into the kingdom of God. John said, I looked and beheld there in the center of the throne. It was no lion. 
But there in the center of the throne was a lamb that had been slain. Christus Victor. Resurrected wounded one. Christ the victim. Christ the priest. You who give your body for the feast. O miracle of miracles, love divine, lamb and priest, offerer and offered, creator and creation, crucified and resurrected. Call us now as Easter people. Call us now as resurrection people to your mind, your heart. Cleanse us of fear, rid us of shame, redeem us from mentalities of scarcity and jealousy, forgive us of sins. And in your blood and in your flesh, in this wine, in this bread, be our supply of all things good. Empower us to not only believe the gospel, empower us to be the gospel, to participate actively in our union with you and all of these, your children. Amen. And on that evening, he gathered with his disciples and he took a piece of bread. And we have argued, Catholics and Protestants, should our crucifix still have a Christ on it? Should our crucifix be empty? And the resurrected one says until there are no more infant mortality rates, until no child struggles for breath in Laboner's hospital, until no more, until no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, until then, of course, Christ is still on that cross. As long as we are enjoined to fill up in our body the sufferings of Jesus, which were incomplete, of course. The resurrected one returns with great power to that cross. Until in his death, all death is absorbed. Until then, we lift up the crucified one and we hear him say, this is my body. And the ball-headed young mother who's lost her hair to chemo, as she couldn't care less because she scrambles to stay with her teenage daughter. Through her life, he whispers, crucified, yes. This is my body, broken. Take and remember me. And he said, as often as you gather together in the light of an open tomb, Know that no tomb is so vacuous, no grave is so empty, no God is so resurrected that as long as little boys wrestle with anemia 
and hemophilia. As long as 51% of the children in Wanamint, Haiti, under the age of 12 are HIV positive. As long as blood runs cold in the veins of my children. Oh, paradox and mystery of the gospel made complete. This is my blood, he said, still shed for you. Take and remember me. And down, down, down comes the condescending God. Down past the constellations and the clouds. Past the seats of man's strength. Down he descends. Down into my mouth. Down into my esophagus. Down into the bellies of human beings. Down, down, down. Until past the belly, the broken one, the resurrected one, finds his place in my soul. And we find our place in his. Sweet Christ, we lift our hearts to you today in hope, imagining a better world, imagining a world made new and a world made right. We lift our hearts in hope, imagining a world of resurrection. Strengthen us now to take up our cross and follow you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.